WUOG 90.5 FM presents Out There, a weekly journey into the world of the occult, conspiracy theory, the paranormal, and other bizarre undercurrents of the human psyche. The views expressed on this program do not reflect those of WUOG 90.5 FM, the University of Georgia, or the Board of Regents. It's Out There with your hosts, Raymond and Joe. everybody welcome to another edition of out there radio my name is raymond wiley and i'm joe mcfall welcome and to the show that's exactly right and yeah. we, we are broadcasting or excuse me we are recording this episode later than we had planned this week i was i was sick in the bed last night it was no good it was no good if you are listening to this live on say wg 9.5 fm in athens georgia then this is a recording yeah it's but not, that's okay. not really live yeah not really live yeah. but We've got a live show, right. and, and, I, and I gotta say, as we get started tonight, it may have been the material that we're covering tonight. Oh yes, that made me sick last night. Yeah, I've been having some weird, some weird physical uh, uh, quirks going on since I started researching the topic that we're going to talk about tonight. So you may be wondering, what kind of topic would make Raymond sick? What, what kind of topic would give Raymond nosebleeds <laughs> out of nowhere for, for the first time since I was in high school? And give me a migraine headache last night. Jonestown. Jonestown. We're going to talk about Jonestown That's tonight. Right. It's kind of heavy, so go ahead and take your Advil. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. Your ibuprofen, I guess. But definitely be. sit sit back, turn out the lights wherever you are, maybe light a candle. But look, this isn't a door. <laughs> this isn't a Doors album, Joe. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So okay. you burn some incense. <laughs> burn some incense too while you're at it. But definitely lock your door because this is some scary stuff. This is some scary stuff, and yeah. uh, and, and you know it was weird because last week we did a really heavy topic, or yeah, last week we did a really heavy topic, and that was of course the occult Nazis. Somehow we got through that with a lot of jokes. I don't know how that that worked we, out. We were in good moods, I guess. Yeah, I, I get to the end of editing that, and I'm like. We're laughing an awful lot from <laughs> I'm an, an occult I'm an, Nazis episode. I'm in a good mood tonight, but I, I somehow don't foresee us laughing a lot talking about the mass suicide of 900 or so people. Right. So we'll see. Who knows? Who we'll, knows, though? We'll the, see the what night happens. is young. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Before we get to all that, we have... Some out there news segments. Yes. Out there news. It's so wonderful. Yeah. It's so wonderful. Anyway, Joe, why don't you get it started you off You want me to tonight? start off on this? Yeah, I think, I think your article's about me tonight. Your out there <laughs> news piece. I think it's about me. So, I, I hope it is. I, I read this in a few places. Um, the the Pope uh, chose a an arch conservative cardinal to deliver the Lenten meditations to the Vatican hierarchy recently. So he said some interesting things. Can, can you just read the headline? Pope this? Pope is warned of a green Antichrist. That's right. Uh, evidently, this cardinal said that the Antichrist will be a pacifist ecologist. An ecumenist. So uh, evidently, and he, he bases this in part on a Russian philosopher and mystic named Vladimir Solovyov. You guys heard of him? No? Who evidently predicted that the Antichrist will convoke an ecumenical council and seek the consensus of all the Christian confessions. Oddly enough, he obviously doesn't mention any sort of environmentalism in that. But uh, I guess Cardinal Biffy here, the Car- Cardinal Giacomo Biffy, 78, is the man who, who delivered this 
these meditations. So he says that, yeah, the Antichrist is going to come back as basically as an ecologist, an environmentalist. Yeah. Maybe it isn't me. Maybe it's Al Gore. Ooh. Interestingly <laughs> enough, uh, around the same time, I lost my other article. They, the other article said it was, was from Jerry Falwell. It's actually, these appeared in uh, different news sources on the very same day. Very interesting. Jerry Falwell uh, talked about environmentalism as a tool of Satan. Um, basically, he was, he was saying that environmentalism, is, and specifically the global warming myth, right, is a tool of Satan. That it is a tool of, tool used by Satan to distract Christians from Christ, and to divert you know the Christian leaders' ministry, Christian Christian ministries' leaderships away from Christ and towards something that in fact will help our species or something. So, <laughs> according to your opinion, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, so uh, this is this is what Falwell is saying simultaneously, practically, as this guy from the Vatican who's who's saying, "Beware of the green antichrist." So I, found I don't know. We better great. watch out. They're in they're in such agreement on this. They may convene an ecumenical council. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's possible. Yeah, it is possible. Falwell is possible. and the and the Pope, mm-hmm. who, by the way. Uh, not to offend any Catholics mm-hmm. in, in, the, in the audience, I'm not saying casting any dispersions on the, the Pope's actual, uh, philo- uh, actual, you know, personal goodness or badness here. But he, does he look like the Emperor from Star Wars to you? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, when I, I mean, I... he looks like the Emperor from Star Wars, Joe, way more than you look like Heinrich Himmler. I'll tell you that. Okay, you know, I'll, I'll accept that. <laughs> that makes you feel good, right? You had your doubts. I still do. Episode. I still do. You you haven't put my mind at ease about this, but that's <laughs> well, okay. Maybe you need some bo- Botox in the jaw, you know, <laughs> strengthen that jaw a little bit. Perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> some implants. That's right. That's right. So what else? So, so any final thoughts on well, this Antichrist? You know, there's there's a few, uh, some, some, some interesting implications for this. And, you know, Raymond, you and I were talking a couple weeks ago, long before I even read these stories about... And you know how I like to run through political scenarios in my head a lot. Like, I I tend to do that sort of thing. And one of the things that I'm interested in is uh, whether Al Gore is going to run for president in 08. And if so, how how would he be beat? How could someone beat Al Gore as a presidential candidate? And to do that, obviously, you need to get, like, the right-wing Christian vote, in this country at least. And so... It would it would be perfect, I think, for like the Republicans or especially the more extreme religious type uh, Christian Republicans to cast Al Gore as the Antichrist. What a perfect way to defeat Al Gore. Cast him as Antichrist. Say he is yeah. the Antichrist. Yeah, say he is the Antichrist. And and cook up some phony Nostradamus prophecies <laughs> right, to right, back you up. Right. Right? Right. It could work. Yeah. It could work. Yeah. I mean, uh, so it's just, stranger things have happened. So that, I found that pretty interesting, having come across that after I had been thinking about good ways to defeat Al Gore. Why were you thinking about that? I thought you, uh, I thought you had good, generally good feelings about him. Yeah, I do, and that's part part of why I was thinking about it. Why, you know, how could how, he? How will the man destroy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your candidate of choice today. Right, right. So, better than Hillary Clinton. That's all I got to say. Here. Amen. So. Amen. So, oh, speaking of of Hillary Clinton. Funniest thing. I'm going through some uh, some blog sites on the web. I was on the 9-11 blogger site, yeah, keeping yeah. up with the latest antics of the 9-11 truth movement. And apparently some, some actor from Law & Order 
has come out and he's he's running for president and uh, he's got the 9-11 truth ticket going. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I'm reading this article or whatever, the synopsis on this blogger site. And it says something to the effect of uh, this this actor who's running for president believes that Bush planned 9-11 and that uh, him and that the Bushes and the Clintons were dealing drugs in Arkansas in the 1980s. Has he been listening to our show? I was about to say, man, I was like, this is a candidate I can get behind. <laughs> yeah. I listened to the interview and he didn't sound too together. I mean, you know, you said he sounded TV, drunk. TV actor. He sounded <laughs> right. a little drunk. Right. Uh, now I don't know that for sure. Now don't don't that 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 is known for sure. But I will say this, you know, actors, you know, Schwarzenegger, Reagan, hello. It's possible. Mm-hmm. But, Clint Eastwood, uh, Sonny Bono. Clint Eastwood. He was. He wasn't like a, a a national politician, but he wasn't he like a mayor of some town. Charlton Heston. Is he a mayor somewhere? Well, I mean, he does the NRA stuff, but. Well, no, he he just rides into town and and shoots all the bad guys. Right? <laughs> That's right. So That's right. anyway, point being, I'm like, wow, this he has been listening to our show. He must have been. Right. Bush planned 911 <laughs> and. Uh, Clinton and Bush were dealing drugs in Mena, Arkansas? Yeah, yeah. Where, where could he have possibly heard that besides well, us? Same place that we got it from. We <laughs> yeah, didn't make right. that up, oh, you yeah. know. <laughs> That's right. We're not, <laughs> I gotta admit, we're not blazing too many trails on this show. <laughs> but, but, we do have a trailblazer in the studio tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, Austin Gandy. That's right. Our favorite recurring character on Out There Radio. Bring it on up to the mic, my friend. All right. Well, I am very glad that Jerry... Falwell came up. That leads me straight into the topic of my story, which is an aggressive demon who will go to extraordinary lengths to spread belief in him amidst uh, unsuspecting and a defenseless populace. Now, I'd like to start this little story off with a, uh, a quote from Joseph Campbell. Myth is the secret opening through which the inexhaustible energies of the cosmos pour into human manifestation. That's our our good friend Joseph Campbell, lovely man. Now, now I know most of your your listeners will probably be familiar with, or at least have heard of the idea of of a meme, an idea which behaves kind of like a living organism, like that song you can't get out of your head, like a you, virus. Yeah, a virus. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You you repeat it to people. You know, you you find yourself singing it, and then all of a sudden, you know, everybody on the street is just they've got this this idea living and replicating itself in its in their heads. Well, the subject of our news piece tonight, um, who has recently started uh, or has made a resurgence in his activity um, this very year, is a uh, possibly the most aggressive little meme we have ever come across. He's known as Popobawa. His other names include Simonat and Imran. And when there are multiple incidences of attacks by the spirit, he's referred to by the plural Mapopobawa. Now, the name comes from the Swahili words Popo bat and bawa wing so he's a bat-winged creature now this uh this fellow originates in the island of pimba but he has spread his activities over the years uh, since his first appearance in the 1970s throughout other islands in the zanzibar archipelago and has spread all the way to dar es salaam and other urban centers along the tanzanian coast now the mo for this this being who is described as a cyclopean dwarf or sometimes an ogre with great bat wings is a little extreme. 
His presence is first announced by the sound of scraping claws on the roof and a sharp, pungent smell. The Popobawa primarily attacks men and only in their own beds, resulting in a recent rash of many men find themselves sleeping outside in streets, huddled around great bonfires, or on their porches after reported attacks. And I'll get to why these attacks are so reported. He attacks men as they sleep, overpowering them, holding their faces to the floor, and sodomizing them for up to an hour. An hour. Now the victims are threatened once the the attack has finally uh, stopped. The attack is uh, accompanied by a paralysis. The, The victims are then threatened with repeated and longer sodomizations if they do not let their friends and neighbors know of their experience. So after one of these attacks is over, you've got men fleeing their houses, running up and down the streets, screaming that the Popobawa has, has humiliated them and has attacked them in the night. A strange enough story, but I assure you, it does get stranger. <laughs> Don't be such a skeptic, because there's a very, very good reason not to be a skeptic. Now, this demon has been known to attack men and women, But apparently his preferred prey are those who do not believe in him. He will seek them out and let them know that he exists in no unclear terms. (laughs) Now, another interesting aspect of this, though. Uh, There are a variety of origin stories for our friend the Popobawa. One states that he is the retribution of a charlatan witch doctor who is, or I'm sorry, a witch hunter who was chased off the island of Pimba when it was revealed that incidents of cursing and hexing were actually on the rise since his arrival. And then several years later, in the 1970s, the spirit attacks began, and several districts on the island of Pimba began to speculate that perhaps this was retribution for them chasing this witch hunter away. Another story says that it's the vengeance of a whale spirit after a whale washed up on the beach several years before the first Popobawa incident, this carcass was apparently mistreated in some way. And a possessed woman at the time, possessed by her guardian spirit, proclaimed that there would be grand and terrible retribution, indeed retribution, uh, for the mistreatment of this whale. But perhaps the most compelling origin story comes from 1995. And this is an interesting year for, for the, entire, the entire region. Um, because the incidences of Popobawa attacks appear to be in line with the election cycle. You've got uh, your first appearance in the 70s, but then a major panic outbreak of hysteria in the 19 in 1995. This was repeated to a slightly lesser degree in 2000, and we've got current attacks happening right now in 2007. But during the 1995 elections, once the uh, the incidences of attack reached the Wete province. And to give you a little background, um, there are two uh, major political parties at play in this particular region. The Chamacha Mapindus, which is the current, the biggest political party, which uh, is exerting a great deal of control over the region, and the Civic United Front, which uh, is highly supported on the island of Pimba, the island of origin for our uh, Popobawa. Now, as these incidences were on the rise in April and May of, two th- of, of 1995, excuse me, the uh, residents of these little cities in the Wete district, um, they were noticing a lot of government vehicles uh, marked with the CCM. Um, and they began to speculate, well, what if there's some correlation between the presence of these government vehicles and the rise in Popobawa uh, activity? So 
the concerned villagers um, raised up money and they scrimped and they saved and they put it all in a big fund to bring in local uh, traditional healers and witch doctors to uh, congregate in the city and congregate at, at the mosques where they would read incantations and prayers and attempt to trap these Popobawa. And thanks to the help of guardian spirits uh, in pre- uh, that were present that day, several of these Popobawa were evidently trapped and interrogated. And they revealed that they were indeed part of a government conspiracy to spread sodomizing demons throughout <laughs> the unsuspecting populace of the island of Pimba. That's horrible. Isn't it? Yeah. But it does this not blow away so many of the conspiracy theories that you come across? It makes uh, <laughs> it makes government-sponsored cocaine uh, distribution not so bad. Not so bad at all. Yeah. But there are some audacious people out there who disregarding the Popobawa's very clear warnings to the contrary, have decided to interpret these events. Um, In the December 1995 issue of Skeptical Briefs, Joe Nickel says, One needs only to read Peter Houston's Night Terrors, Sleep Paralysis, and Devil-Stricken Telephone Cords from Hell, which appeared in the fall 1992 Skeptical Inquirer, to learn that the Popobawa is simply a Zanzibarian version of a psychological phenomenon known as a waking dream. One of the characteristics of such a dream is a feeling of being weighted down or even paralyzed. Alternately, one may float or have an out-of-body experience. Other characteristics include extreme vividness of the dream and bizarre and or terrifying content. I would like to award this man, by the way, an an honorary uh, Is of Identity Award for so boldly uh, explaining the intangible with the equally intangible. But I would caution all those adepts out there in Zanzibar and Tanzania to watch their backs um, should they feel inclined to side with Joe Nickel here and doubt the reality of local superstitions. Because while myth is the secret opening through which the inexhaustible energies of the cosmos pour into human manifestation, it's not the only opening. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Austin. Come back to the mic for a second. I have a question. So, all, right. all I need to protect myself from my Popobawa is just the belief that these things exist. Oh, certainly. He appears to just be, you know, this is a big PR campaign. He's just getting the word out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very aggressive. It seems like an effective strategy. I, I mean, it would be, you know. I think we should uh, consider whether, the, I mean, should we suggest this as a political strategy? <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think it's probably already in I think works. they already use it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Austin. <laughs> that was great. Oh, Raymond, I think the... The microphone has it out for you, man. It's like a scorpion <laughs> tail rising up out of the back of the soundboard. It's going to sting you right me. in the forehead. Oh. <laughs> anyway. That was great, Austin. That was, that was wonderful. Nice. That was, that's, uh, you know what I like about Austin's segments is that he always ends up talking about some faraway land. You know, we, we're, we almost exclusively talk about North America. I know. And, uh, and sometimes South America. Yeah, true. Well, we have yeah. gotten the Latin America thing. Yeah, but but we're hemisphere centric. We, exactly. Yeah, Austin, you've taken us to Russia and Romania, uh, Tanzania. Yeah, Greece. Everywhere you've taken us. We've all been, the world. We've been everywhere together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we love you, Austin Gandhi. So, we got anything else we want to talk about before we go to the break? Today? I don't think so. 
Okay, well, yeah. stay tuned. I'm, I hope you got your last out now because yeah. don't expect too many more with the rest of the show. However, as dark as the, ne- the next part of the show, the next uh, segment, the main segment the jo- about the Jonestown uh, suicide massacres um, from 1978, as dark as it is, this is one of the... I think one of the most interesting topics that we've ever talked about. Absolutely. So stay tuned. Yeah, for we it. started off, you know, we started off trying to um, do a show about suicide cults. It was going to be a general show. We were going to cover a few different topics. Mm-hmm. We got into this Jonestown investigation, and it's just blossomed and blossomed and blossomed. It's so deep. It's it, so deep. Exactly. I know we say that a lot, but no, this really is. It is. Yeah. So stick around because. We haven't even opened the can of worms yet, so. So we'll open it in a minute here on Out There Radio. You're listening to Out There with Raymond and Joe. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back here on Out There Radio. My name is Raymond Wiley, and I'm joined in the studio with my co-host, Soon to be Dr. Joe McFall. <laughs> Not quite soon. Soon like in a couple of years, I mean. Soon like bef- maybe before I'm 40 if I'm lucky. Because <laughs> you're, like, you're like 39 and a half now, right? You're getting old there, Joe. Come on, He's man. not. He ain't that old. I'm 30, he, 31. He's lying about that, too. He's, don't listen to him. Don't listen to him. But so, I just want to say, Raymond, that if you listen to the first part of our show before the break, I, we have obviously done our listeners a great service. Well, Austin Gandy has done us and our listeners a great service by bringing up this whole Popa Bawa. Absolutely, thing. because I mean, you know, you've hopefully you've been listening to most of the episodes that have that have we've done yeah. up until this point. Just you know, because you're in Fargo or Omaha or wherever does not mean that Popa Bawa will come sodomize you in the middle of the night. It's true, and since we've built up this level of trust over all these episodes, maybe you will actually truly believe. In the Popo Bawa. I know I do. But yeah, I, I do. I really, really believe. Popo Bawa, if you're listening. I believe in you. Yep. No need to target me. That's right. I can, I can, I can imagine it now. Some scratching on the, on the, on the roof of my townhouse. <laughs> nah. Not in Athens? Hey. From Tanzania to Athens. Hey, a demon's a demon. That's true. It's very true. So, speaking of demons... We're going to talk about one very demonic sort of figure tonight, and that is Jim Jones. Jim Jones Jim and Jones. the Jonestown the Jones. suicides. Yes, the Jonestown Massacre. Often referred to called. as the Jonestown Massacre, which is I find interesting. Well, we'll get to uh, that whole issue much later, but you know, I, I find it interesting, Joe. We talk about a lot of very well-known historical topics on this show, especially stuff that's happened in the past 40, 50 years in the United States. Right. But what strikes me is, even though many of the things that we talk about on this show were covered in, in incredible depth at the time in the press, uh, the public memory here in this country especially, I find, is very short. And I'm surprised at how many of the topics that we talk about, the people that I know just don't know anything about at all. And this Jonestown thing is is no exception to that. It's it's almost like it's sort of faded out of the public memory. Well, we're we're of course not not the only content producers who are working on this Jonestown thing right now. And mm-hmm. maybe that's um, maybe it's sort of fortuitous that we're doing this now because I think is it PBS that's going to be airing yeah. next month? Yeah, PBS is going to air a documentary that came out last year. That actually won some awards at some independent film festivals. Um, I actually have the name of the documentary. It's um, called Jonestown, The Life and Death 
Oh, I didn't write the full name down. It's it's called the some, life and death of the people's temple. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes. But yeah, um, P- uh, PBS is going to be airing that very documentary in early April. Actually, real I didn't find out about this until we started researching this, but now I'm very interested in seeing it. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, to watching that yeah. when it comes out. Maybe we'll maybe this will be a good primer for what you're going to see there because that's going to have a lot more primary material than we're going to have. Tonight. Yeah. We're going to play one clip for you tonight, which um, which we got from a another public broadcasting audio documentary called Father Cares, and yeah. you can download that uh, whole documentary off it's the internet. Also a PBS. Yeah, thing. exactly. It's it's funny fascinating. It's, yeah, and very fascinating, and a lot of audio material because that's the, I guess that's the first thing we should say about this is mm-hmm. this is a really rich subject for a radio show because. Jim Jones and the People's Temple recorded almost every day, um, and there's, uh, I think, almost a thousand hours worth of material that can be accessed about Jonestown. Now, you may have to subpoena it or something like that at this point, but some of these clips have gotten out, especially the infamous suicide tape, Mm -hmm. which we'll talk a lot about later, and um, some of the clips that are on this documentary. So check that out when you get done with the episode tonight. There's, Father cares. There's actually, I came across in doing this research, um, I believe it's San Diego State University has an archive of Jonestown research, including transcripts of most of the tapes that were, were recovered after the suicides. So not only transcripts, but also short descriptions and lists of uh, names of people who Jones mentioned in his nightly sermons and things of that sort. Also articles written by survivors of Jonestown, um, survivors of the people's or people who escaped Jonestown, people who were in the People's Temple, people who knew Jim Jones. Um, you know, this happened in 1978. These most of these people who didn't die in Jonestown are still alive. They're still around. Many right, of them. Right. Right. But so you know, we've sort of gone over the sources. Now let's get to the story. This is a very interesting tale, and we're going to try to hit the high points with it, and also at the end get into some actually conspiracy material, yeah. which we did not. Like I was saying earlier, we did not expect this topic to sort of dovetail from the strange religious angle into the conspiracy mind control angle, but that's exactly where it's going to go. So stay tuned for that at the end of the segment. Joe, why don't you kick us off by, by giving us a short biography of Jim Jones's early life and the formation of the People's Temple, his church. Jim Jones was born in 1931. Um, he died, of course, November 18, 1978, although that is an interesting topic as to you know when when he died, which we'll get to when we talk about the night the night of the suicides. He was the founder of the People's Temple. He went to high school in Richmond, Indiana, became a preacher in the 50s, got a bachelor's degree at Butler University in 1961, went to graduate school at Indiana University in Bloomington, and then uh, sold pet monkeys door to door to raise the money to fund his own church. Yeah, he would get the monkeys from um, the local college uh, animal research center when they were done with them. Mm-hmm. And that a, that's a bizarre job. I mean, we're talking about a charismatic yeah. religious leader here. You have to be pretty charismatic to sell monkeys door-to-door, mm-hmm. seriously. Mm-hmm. So Very strange. So I guess once he got enough money to fund his own church, he named it Wings of Deliverance, later renamed it to the People's Temple in Indianapolis. He became an ordained minister in 1964 in the mainstream Christian church, uh, Disciples of Christ. Uh, They later evidently rescinded his ordination. One thing that Jim Jones always seemed to stand for, even from his early days of ministering, was fair and equal treatment of African Americans and uh, the poor and oppressed. 
Well, I mean, People's Temple, that sort of yeah. sums it up. Yeah. There was always a very leftist bent to the way he preached. And so, but it's not a Christian thing, though. It's not a Christian church, right? Well, it, he, is he ever, would he ever have considered himself a Christian minister? Sure. In the beginning, certainly. He was heavily into racial equality and social justice, and he called this apostolic, uh, apostolic socialism. He authored a booklet called The Letter Killeth, which ended up evidently becoming um, sort of a, a black book that many of the People's Temple followers were instructed to read. And in this uh, pamphlet, it's more of a pamphlet, it uh, described contradictions in the Bible, um, absurdities, atrocities, but also stated that the Bible contained great truths. Now, Jones also evidently um, around... Maybe it could have been before he started uh, his ministry, but um, he claimed he he would do faith healings, tent revivals too, right? That sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. claimed contact with extraterrestrials. So he's a charlatan. Yeah, or he seems that way. Certainly, certainly from this early description. Right, right. <clears throat> I mean, the kind of faith healings he would do, and I don't know if you if you came across any of this audio, Raymond, of of Jones doing faith healings. Uh, one where he. Um, He's encountering a woman who has throat cancer, right? And makes her uh, throw up. Yeah, vomit. Yeah, uh, he, she's and she's coughing up blood, and evidently, oh, the tumor comes out. And he would use, you know, like most faith healing charlatans, he would have plant, you know, plants in the audience who would claim some disease and come up and have them, you know, cough out a chicken liver. Right. In this case, I get the idea that it was really this woman's blood, and she probably actually did horrible damage to her throat possibly but he yeah. was known even even at jonestown with which had a population of you know a little maybe less than a thousand people or a little more than a thousand people i think the figure was like 1100 people total at jonestown by the time most of them committed suicide but um even then you know in a population that small you'd think you know, everyone knows everyone else but even then there were people who would get up on stage and and they knew that what was going on was fake, and they were instructed to do particular things. And so, but still, people believed in the validity of Jones's um, miraculous powers. So, why would his followers? I mean, this is something that happened even from these early years that mm -hmm. we're talking about. Why would his most hardcore followers go along with him on a fake faith healing if they really think he's some messianic figure? Well, because. They many of them had experiences that they couldn't explain, so there were some interesting reports in this um, in the SDSU archives, where people who had participated in fake faith healings said, "Okay, yes, I participated in fake faith healings, but still, there were certain events that I I can't explain. That, you know, other than Jim Jones had some sort of paranormal or miraculous powers." Um, so, for instance, one of the things was uh, this man who, I think he was joining the Peace Corps, about to go to his Peace Corps training, and found himself one day sitting. His friend was in People's Temple, and he found himself sitting on a log next to a creek, um, wondering, you know, what he's doing with his life and all of this stuff. And he's like, oh, well, you know, my friend, ad you know, advocates for Jim Jones. I'll think in my head, you know, Jim Jones, if you're listening, respond to my question. And... I guess within a few weeks, his friend who was in People's Temple called him up and said that during um, Jim, during Jones's last sermon, 
which incidentally was taking place at the exact same time this guy's sitting right. at the river. Right. Whatever. So Jones uh, calls out his name and says, "I, you know, points to the, the man's friend and says, your friend so-and-so uh, is right now sitting on a log next to a stream looking for answers. And I want you to call him and tell him such and such. So this, and th- this wasn't the only story that this man had, even though he admitted participating in some of the fake stuff. He was like, well, because I know that there's some reality behind Jones, behind his powers. I mean, this is a man who claimed to be Jesus, an incarnation of Jesus, Akhenaten, Buddha, Lenin, uh, some others. You know, he was basically saying, I am God. Kind of a megalomaniac. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the in understatement fact, not, of the century. Not kind of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, certainly a megalomaniac. But he, for whatever reason, and if you've seen pictures of him, he doesn't look like someone who would be extraordinarily charismatic. But this is a man who evidently convinced almost a thousand people to drink cyanide-laced Kool-Aid one night in 1978. Very bizarre. Yeah, he looks like a, a Baptist preacher. He looks like an Elvis impersonator almost. Oh, yeah, I was you thinking know? that. He's got these big Elvis glasses. Yeah, yeah. He's kind of heavy set with the dark hair. Sideburns. It's very yeah. bizarre. And he sounds like a Baptist preacher mm-hmm. or um, a revivalist preacher. It's very bizarre. Mm-hmm. It's very bizarre. He's got... And he talks in a very... Um, I want to say down to earth, but he talks under his education level, typically. Yeah. Talks sort of, not talking down, but sort of um, candy coating things for his audience, it seems like. So Jones uh, founds the People's Temple in Indianapolis and um, eventually moves out to California, to Ukiah, California, and then uh, moves into San Francisco. They called him the Messiah from Ukiah. That's right. For a long time. That's right. But in San Francisco, some interesting stuff happened. He evidently got into the political circles in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he had political connections. He, in many ways, was seen as like a fundraiser for local politicians. The mayor loved him. They made him, what, the president of the housing authority Yeah, in San the Francisco. head of the housing authority. You know, and what's interesting about this is that he, um, well, he picks the right city, I think. Mm-hmm. San Francisco was right for something like this at the time. Um, was, it mid, was it the mid or the early 70s by this point? Early 70s. This is the early 70s. There's all sorts of social movements that have been going on in San Francisco. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of flotsam and jetsam mm-hmm. to be picked up, put it to you that way, at, at the time. And a lot of people very disaffected with the way the 60s ended. And, you know, the Manson murders, the Tate-LaBianca murders, had happened just a year or two before, and, you know, in in and around L.A. Right, right. So the politics of the 60s had sort of given way to a personal New Age sort of outlook for um, many people. And that's where Jones found his followers. And it's strange because uh, they're, not the, they're not the usual makeup of a church. They were uh, a lot of white professionals, mm-hmm. about 10%. Yeah. And these are doctors, lawyers, highly educated people. And then a lot of, and then poor, and then poor and dispossessed white folks, and then, but mostly black, black people and black women mm-hmm. in the majority too. So a lot of families too. I think mm-hmm. there was, you know, about a, a quarter to a third of them were children, <laughs> right? Um, so, in Jonestown. So in these early years, if you don't read too much into the sermons, and you don't, and you don't look too hard underneath what his sermons were saying in this early period, it really looks like a vibrant liberal 
church with a sort of a new philosophy. Well, this is the interesting part. Or it did to people at the time. Pri- I mean, prior to his San Francisco years, he was a fervent right-wing anti-communist who even uh, helped uh, raise funds for Richard Nixon's uh, presidential candidacy in 1968. Um, when he moved to San Francisco, he totally did a, a 180 and started advocating socialism um, and you know liberalism in general. Interesting switch. Very, very interesting Had he, switch. He hadn't been to Brazil yet. I don't, I'm not sure when he was in Brazil. Um, I can't this find is, This is an interesting corollary yeah. here because it's hard to know where this guy really stood mm-hmm. when it comes right down to it. And his rhetoric after he moves to San Francisco is very socialistic and very pro-civil rights. Mm-hmm. And it's almost intentionally sweet to a certain kind of audience. It almost comes across that way. Yeah. So... in in fact, Jones uh, spent a lot of some of the early '60s in Brazil. Lived there with his family. Uh, he he was there in um, 1961. He he started off as this poor itinerant preacher, but then suddenly had enough money in 1961 to go to minister in Brazil. Took his family with him. He'd already adopted like eight children at this point, and his neighbors in Brazil say some very interesting things about them about him that we'll get to when we talk about some of the conspiracy related stuff some of the things and we'll mention a few now some of the things that he he seemed to have money from nowhere quite often he lived seemed to live beyond his means he claimed to receive uh, paychecks from the u.s government he also um, claimed to be uh, working for naval intelligence working for naval intelligence and he also made frequent trips, according to his son, he made frequent trips to Belo Horizonte, which is a site of the CIA, CIA headquarters in Brazil. So that's something that, that kind of starts a thread that will continue later on in this show. But, so keep that in mind. While he's still in San Francisco, and let's assume that you know in those days in Brazil he was still right, very right-wing anti-communist. Um, so he he totally switches gears, or in fact throws it in reverse in San Francisco, becomes a socialist and even a communist. And this is interesting because uh, his in the years previous to this, when he was in Ukiah, California, uh, that's when the the reports start to surface of things being sort of a miss amongst the Jones uh, Church, and you have a lot of reports of things like armed guards. Uh, surrounding the uh, the comp the compound <laughs> the property there at U- mm-hmm. in Ukiah, mm-hmm. and um, des- descriptions of the guards as being like wearing like black jack boots and looking very SS like. Right, right. So it's interesting that he would make this total shift, this total turnaround. His his SS guard suddenly turns into a Red Brigade, and we'll we'll talk more about that Red Brigade later. Mm-hmm. But um, it's. It's a very interesting flip-flop. Yeah. Does he ever describe what brings it on? I don't know. I mean, I didn't find anything in the sources I looked at as to what changed his mind exactly. I mean, it very well could have been, you know, the atmosphere of San Francisco and um, perhaps realizing that or 
or coming to the conclusion that uh, capitalism wasn't really the right thing for the people who were following him. It could also have been something about constructing his message appropriately for poor people. Um, I mean, his congregation was mostly black and, and poor. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the right message for these kinds of people, it's not one of, I don't think it wouldn't necessarily be one of capitalism or anti-communism necessarily. Or it wouldn't it wouldn't resonate it, at all. Yeah, it certainly wouldn't. It certainly wouldn't. So he gets to San Francisco, mm-hmm. and suddenly we've got a people's temple. It's a very social. It's a socialist experiment. Yeah, is the way it looks. Yeah, and he's head of the housing authority. He's he's getting close connections with people who are connected to the poor segments yep. of San Francisco. Any shady dealings that that are going on with the People's Temple with, you know, for instance, these jackbooted guards and reports of abuse of things of that sort, since he was so well-connected politically, the local politicians would defend him. They were almost like uh, People's Temple apologists at the time. Oh, absolutely. And, and they were well-received in, in the public sector. Um, Rosalind Carter visited... The People's Temple. Yeah, I think the, the uh, Governor Jerry Brown did. Yeah, Willie Brown spoke very well of him. So at, at some point, Jones uh, decides that he needs to relocate to set up his socialist utopia. Right, because he doesn't like the rumors that he's hearing of uh, people blowing the whistle on his cultish activities. And he also sort of couches it in terms of preparing for Armageddon as well. Um, preparing for the end of the world and making sure that his people have a place in, you know, what should happen afterwards. Right, because uh, he's convinced that some kind of nuclear war is more than likely going to happen. He he gets this idea, apparently, just from some article on Esquire or some other magazine talking about where uh, where on Earth would be safest in the case of a large nuclear war. So that, mm-hmm. I think that's why he starts looking in places like uh, Guyana. Yeah. And where else does he get some other places to look, right? I think he looks in Brazil as well. But uh, he has, um, I think it's his his wife, his wife's friend or maybe one of his close associates in the People's Temple. Regardless of who it is, he knows people who have connections to the Guyanese government who basically arrange for him to buy uh, all of this land in Guyana. Lease the land. To lease the land, leased, right. Yes. To lease this land in Guyana. Uh, do you know how large it was? It was thousands, several thousand acres. Several thousand acres, and it was something like $60,000 a year right. was the lease. Right. So. so he leases this land in Guyana from the, from the government there and builds his utopian community and calls it Jonestown. That's right. And at first, the, the, the whole temple does not go. He sends people ahead. They build the uh, the shacks, I guess would be the best way to put it, that people end up living in. The barracks. The barracks. Dormitories. And um, they get the settlement going. Mm-hmm. They actually use the dock from an old industrial operation that the French were running out of the area. So it's get this uh, very off-in-the-jungle kind of feeling. It's very remote, the location of this place. It's like something like 250 miles from the nearest ci- the ma- nearest major city, which I think is Georgetown, which is the yeah. capital. Yeah. So, so in 1977, Jonestown's population was about 50, 50 members. By late 1978, its peak was more than 900. So he starts, you know, within a year, the number of people 
that uh, he brings out there. And I, the, I've heard several versions of this story as well. Oh, really? Because I was about to ask you, wasn't it just a mass exodus? It more or less was. He got a bunch of people on charter planes and uh, flew them down to Guyana all at once. Now, I've heard, and I've also heard this story disconfirmed, that uh, as soon as they got off the plane, all the black people were were bound and gagged. Did you come across that little bit of information? At I all? heard that, but that seems that seems kind of far out. Yeah, I heard. I heard. I came across another source that said that was just patently false. I don't know where that. I don't know where that comes from. I mean, it was like ninety percent of the people at Jonestown were African American. Right. So it seems odd to me that they would be able to even tie up. Yeah. Perhaps, perhaps. I mean, don't you need them to, like, walk over to the settlement? Right, right, (laughs) right. So, yeah, this is the thing about Jonestown. If you do any research on this, you'll find that there's a lot of very strange rumors and stories that not every... It's impossible that all of the information about Jonestown can all match up because there's so much, and a lot of it conflicts. but But it makes a very interesting kind of puzzle to figure out what really happened down there so what was jonestown like maybe we should talk about that you know what was what was sort of the day-to-day life in jonestown we've got you know about a thousand people out there working you know 12 or 14 hour days it's it's basically uh, they treated it as an agricultural project right people tending the land um, working all day jones would then have these all-night sermons Right, um, starting uh, I guess after dusk and then continuing well into the morning. Oh. Right. Im- imagine him <clears throat> sitting up on a dais in yeah. the middle of of a plaza at the middle of this this settlement, surrounded by shacks. Right. In the darkness, in the jungle, at night, sitting on a just a normal armchair. Yeah, with, with a little a, table next to it. Right, with a little table next to it with a can of cola probably mm-hmm. or maybe some flavor aid exactly right we'll get to the flavor aid later but mm-hmm. um and with 900 people sitting in front of him yeah listening to every word yeah for hours and hours and hours it's really bizarre right it's and this really is bizarre. you know after working 12 or 14 hour days then spending most of the night listening to jones's sermons and waking up you know five o'clock the next morning with almost no sleep to work another twelve or fourteen hours a day, and that would be they would work six days a week, right? And it's um, a lot of times it's described as it's forced labor. Mm-hmm. It's not just um, it's not just the cultish zeal to work the fields. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, if 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 you got out of line in Jonestown, you know, you would pay for it. There are various ways that they would punish you. So one of the ways they had this little plywood box that was something like six foot by four foot by four foot. They'd put you in all day. Instead of working, you'd go into the the box. It's like the bridge on the river Kwai. If children misbehaved, there there was this well in Jonestown, and if children misbehaved, they would lower them into the well. They they told the children there were monsters in the well, and when they lowered the children in the well, some of Jones's uh, associates would would somehow be able to like grab and touch the children as they're being lowered into the well. So the children would believe that they were being grabbed by these monsters that's so bizarre into the at night too you know can you imagine being eight years old being lowered into a well in the middle of the night being told that there's monsters down there and then having like all these hands on you 
powerful manipulation techniques, and it's par yeah. for the course here. Yeah, completely par for the course. I mean, but it's even more than that too. There was also instances of you know public humiliation, including sexual humiliation by males and females. Um, I heard there was one report. Jones, by the way, was arrested at some point in I think while he was living in California for um, soliciting homosexual sex at a theater uh, from a police officer. Now, he claimed to be the most heterosexual person alive. And in fact, oddly enough, he, he uh, was said to exude sexual energy by many, his, by many of his female followers, um, many of whom he would take as consorts. Um, he had a... Of course, very common. Very yeah. Common. He had a, um, a group of secretaries, all white young women, um, who it was said that he would use them as, as his consorts. But he would also, there were instances of sexual humil- humiliation of men in front of the group. So, for instance, he, I, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say that this sort of thing was always necessarily willing. Uh, you know, these weren't willing people necessarily right. being punished in front of a thousand people on a stage. But like he, you know, basically sexually assaulted a man to, to get him to admit that he was homosexual right in front of i mean this is in front of a thousand people and this is the kind of thing along with his inspirational sermons and oh, faith right. healing this is the kind of thing that would go on nightly that's not the only thing though there were the drills yeah the white knights the white knights yeah so they let's talk about the white knights in a second because okay. there's some there's some stuff that leads up to this it's very interesting there were a lot of what many people would consider mind control drugs found not only after the death of these of his followers but also i mean these these all of the survivors says say that these were used uh, often as punishment um thorazine chloral hydrate um which is like a hypnotic uh agent a lot um, of tranquilizers a lot of tranquilizers so they i mean they would they would tranquil tranquilize you or jones or his Lieutenants would tranquilize you and then perhaps humili- humiliate you or torture you or whatever in front of people or put you in the box all day, for instance. Now, the, I, from one source, and this is, this is actually from Wikipedia, which is interesting that Wikipedia is the only source for this. There were also, evidently, there's reports that while the children watched Jones perform sex acts in front of the entire congregation, they were fed LSD and psychoactive mushrooms. I don't know about that. I don't know about that either. Uh, that's another one of those yeah, that's the, seemingly spurious sort yeah, of things. Yeah, that, that sounds spurious to me. And also it's not sourced in Wikipedia, which maybe even uh, takes away some of any, any credence that was to that claim. It's well, there you go. Yeah. So much for the Wikipedia version of events. Yeah, yeah. So, um, um, it's another example of one of those, you know, sort of vague rumors surrounding Jonestown that no one will ever really know whether it was true or not. Right, but but we but we know we do know the source for the other drugs that yeah. were in there and that's the fact that there were actually doctors right. present. Right. And they so. they made very detailed records of how much they gave to whom. Right, but they had thousands more doses than they would ever need of all of these drugs. Mm-hmm. They've, it's been described as enough to drug the whole city of Georgetown for months. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, I heard that, I heard that. So the White Knights then, because uh, the White Knights were these basically suicide drills. 
I mean, remember, Jonestown uh, was established in 1977 with 50 members, and a year later, with uh, a, about 1,000 people, they committed mass suicide in, on one night. So in that year, uh, Jonestown went from, from this, what many considered, I think, to be utopia, a socialist uh, utopia, a utopian commune to being more or less a torture camp or a concentration camp or a work camp or whatever you want to call it. I mean, to me, it sounds like a nightmare from the beginning. I, I agree 100%. And, and I don't think, I think the utopia was just what they wanted it to be. You yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But, you know, you can tell people, um, I mean, you can tell people anything and, and they'll, they'll swallow it if you're manipulative enough. I mean, they'll believe, they'll really believe that it's a utopia if they want to. And if they're being constantly fed this with, I mean, which is basically what amounts to mind control techniques. I mean, it's exactly. um, it's like taking some interesting psychological tricks and combining it with the most heavy-handed sort of revivalist evangelical-style preaching. Mm -hmm. um, or at least that type of rhetoric, maybe not the same message. Yeah. Very potent mix. And, and Jones at the time, uh, according to many reports, was basically hooked on amphetamines. So he was popping speed this whole time. And of course, obviously, his paranoia started to increase during this year. Um, this is when he started these White Knights drills. The White Knights drills were suicide drills. Basically get everyone in the camp all together and tell them this is it. Tonight it's really going to happen. Um, we're all going to, you know, drink this uh, Kool Aid that has cyanide in it. We're going to die peacefully tonight. And what was his motivation for these? Oftentimes he would say that, you know, his the, his attackers, the people, his enemies, were waiting in the jungle, ready to storm in. And as soon as they get into the camp, they're going to start torturing our children and our elderly. Right, and that's and that's the uh, that's the argument he makes on the final night. Yeah, exactly. Well. So there's a there's a custody battle in the middle of all this, right? Yeah. That's that's sort of the catal the catalyst to most of the trouble. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? One of the um, people who had gotten out of the People's Temple during that year seventy seven seventy eight had claimed when he got back to the United States that. Uh, that he was the father of a boy whom uh, Jones had also claimed paternity of. It was, was it Tim Stone, I believe, or Timothy Stone was his name? Right. So he got in touch with a congressman named Leo Ryan to help him get his son back, he claimed. Yeah, and he had legal custody, like you said. You know, that's, a, that's an important issue here is because the child's over in Guyana, mm -hmm. or down in Guyana, mm -hmm. and has left... And um, it was against his wishes, right? His break with the, his break with the People's Temple was before that, or in fact, he was never even a member, right? It was only his wife. No, I, he, I believe he was a member. Okay, so there was a man named Timothy O. Stone, who was uh, an attorney, attorney, strategist, confidant of Jim Jones, um, and this. So this guy, Jim uh, Tim Stone, has like many of the the facts alleged facts of this story it's not quite clear who this guy is or what his motivations are on the one hand i've seen reports that say that uh you know he was the, the father of a, a boy that was uh that 
Jones also claimed uh, paternity of. On the other hand, I've seen reports that say that Tim Stone was this classic agent provocateur who was an agent of the U.S. government who was basically assigned to Jim Jones and tried to incite him to violence and things of this sort. He was his head lawyer as well. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So, I mean, a, a, it's common for provocateurs to be put in high-ranking positions or to be the ones who end up in the high-ranking positions because they reach for it, A, and they're already highly together being agents. Mm-hmm. So what happens with this this custody battle, though? Well, uh, Stone ends up lobbying Washington at, to to try to get... Uh, you know, to try to get the, his, his alleged son out of Jonestown. But doesn't he have legal custody? I thought that was a legal custody issue here. Perhaps. I mean, th- what ends up happening is that uh, Congressman Leo Ryan from California uh, ends up starting to advocate for Tim Stone for whatever reason, whether it's because he actually did have legal custody or because he just claimed paternity uh, or whatever. He brought Jonestown to the attention of this congressman. And this is sort of where, I mean, not that everything hadn't already taken a downturn, but this is where it gets really bad. And really weird. And very, so, very weird. So Leo Ryan is, is an interesting figure. He, he, like Joe, you were just saying, he takes up the cause of Jonestown, Jonestown and mm. uh, decides he wants to go for a visit. Yeah. And well, he had heard of the reports of, you know, abuse, human rights violations, and all of this, all of this sort of thing. And so he, he organizes a visit. He gets some journalists. He gets some State Department types. They all go down to Guyana. Mm-hmm. He takes reporters with him, mm-hmm. too, like award-winning reporters, major media types, to sort of cover the whole situation. There's a camera. There's a TV cameraman with him. There are newspaper reporters. Mm-hmm. It's a whole big thing. Right. Jones does not want this, by the way. Right. He is not interested in having any outsiders from America coming in and taking a look at what's going on. Well, especially How... because he he knows Tim Stone, and he knows his motivations. In fact, he describes Tim, Tim Stone as a CIA agent. Okay? So to him, and anyone who left Jonestown, who left the People's Temple, they were called traitors. And the worst sort of punishments were dreamed up for traitors. I don't, did you listen to the audio, Raymond, of, um, I think you did because this was in the PBS, um, the radio. Yeah, um, Father Cares. Father Cares, yeah. where it has people coming up on stage and sort of witnessing as to what they would do should their family members who are traitors come back to Jonestown. Right. They, they talk about how they want how they're going to kill them. Yeah. Basically. Each and every one of them. Yeah. It's very. And Jones laughs maniacally at their descriptions. It is. It, it's. It, it'll shake you it's up. It's chilling. It'll shake you it's up. It's utterly chilling, especially when there's one that's a little boy, right. who he talks about what um, he would do to his mother, should she come back to Jonestown, right. or to his sister or something. It's. It's really. It's really bizarre. Yeah. So. There's there's been a growing fear for a long time before the Ryan visit that something like this was going to happen, and that the army, the Guyanese army or the U.S. army, is going to come in and take this child away, mm-hmm. and none of them are going to allow it because you know it's it's a cult. They're all in solidarity on things, and um, so they have a few incidences where they're sort of mentally preparing themselves for this upcoming. Um, 
this upcoming confrontation. And sometimes it's the white knights, like we were talking about earlier, these mass suicide drills where mm-hmm. we're going to use our, our the threat of us killing ourselves all together as a way of keeping people out, which works. It works. By the way, on a few notable or notable uh, cir- circumstances or notable occasions. Um, there was also once, by the they actually were attacked by some sort of paramilitary unit. Oh, really? Yeah. Did you ever come no, across no, that no. stuff? So... So evidently, there there was there had been a paramilitary attack on Jonestown, which of course, you know, drove Jones's paranoia at the time. You know, this whole while he's he's preaching, his anti-capitalism gets more fervent. Yeah. Oh, he's talking about the communist utopia almost all the time. Yeah. Uh, Lenin and Marx and all this stuff. But going back to what I was saying a second ago. Yeah. Yeah. There's sort of two different strategies he's using. One is to prepare for these prepare mass suicide as a as a countermeasure, and the other one is the idea that we're going to fight, we're going to fight back. Right. And um, actually, we have a clip for you that we're going to play, and it's all about how what the people at Jonestown are willing to do uh, to keep uh, this person from being taken out of their midst. So that's the context there, and just. Put yourself in, in, in the setting here. This is at night in the Guianese jungle, you know, torchlight and shacks everywhere. You know, it's it's like something out of a Joseph Conrad novel or out of the film Apocalypse Now. If you if you if you are familiar with the, this film or the book Heart of Darkness and you and you compare it to the character, the Kurtz character, the main character in either one of these stories the the parallels to this Jim Jones story are striking to me. And um, it's sort of my own trip, so I'm not going to go into it too much tonight, <laughs> which you're sort of laughing about. Well, but. no, I, I, you're totally right, though. I mean, if anyone who's ever seen Apocalypse Now and can picture that the scenes that take place, uh, you know... At the end of the film. At the end of the film, when Martin Sheen makes it into Kurtz's compound and you've got, you know, a thousand people... In the in the middle of the jungle, in the middle of the night, and they've just gone native. Yeah, right. So put yourself in in that context as you listen to this clip. We'll be back here in just a moment. But I don't ever say hate is your enemy. Love has practically caused me to just get you destroyed. If I had hated a little more, just a little more, we would have had a little less trouble. Because I look at my faults analytically. Sure, you got love. Principle. But don't say, hate is my enemy. What did they say? What's that word? Hate is my enemy. i got to fight it day and night. And what else is there? the line? Love is the only weapon. Bullshit. Martin Luther King died with love. Kennedy died talking about something he couldn't even understand. Some kind of generalized love. And he never even backed it up. He shut down. Bullshit. Love is the only weapon with which i got to fight. i got a hell of a lot of weapons to fight. I got my claws, I got compasses, I got guns, I got dynamite, I got a whole lot to fight. I'll fight, I'll fight, I will fight, I will fight, I will fight, I will fight. Let them hear it in the night. Thank you. 
out there. They're out there. They're listening. Let the night roar with it. Let the night roar. Because they can hear us. They know we mean it. We'll kill them if they come. So that is one to me one of the most the creepiest clips I've ever heard. Oh god. I mean yeah. that really happened, y'all. That's not some movie, that's not some novel. Like that really happened one night in the jungle in Guyana. And it wasn't the only night that something like that was was taking place. Right. These are, these and are the and these of... would go on for hours. That screaming and yelling you heard. Yeah. That would go on for hours some nights. Yeah. So. We're talking about nightly sermons. Talking about the darkness, mm-hmm. the horror. I mean, all of the. I mean, seriously, it's like straight out of Heart of Darkness. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Let's talk. Let's go back to this this Soviet thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the, the, the pro socialist, pro communist mood of the camp gets gets heavier and heavier and redder and redder. I guess would be the best way to put it. Um, as time goes by, and there's even talk of them leaving Jonestown mm-hmm. and going. Uh, to the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Jones so. had buddied up with uh, the Soviet embassy in Guyana. Evidently, there were several times when Soviet officials came to Jonestown to just take a look around and look at this, you know, this the first American uh, communist uh, camp mm-hmm. outside of the United settlement. States. Settlement. Settlement. Yeah, communist yeah. settlement. And to praise it, you know. And there's this audio of Jones preparing his followers for the visitation from the Soviet official. Uh, you know, he's telling them, oh, make sure that you call everyone comrade. And, and you know, one of the things that uh, he would do during these, um, any, any of his sermons, there was always often the dialogue. People would be able to get up and talk to him in front of everyone. And, you know, so he would, he would uh, this particular time preparing for the Soviet visit, he would, you know, call people up and berate them until they could pronounce comrade correctly or, you know, things of Socialism that sort. correctly. Yeah, 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 yeah. But at the same time, it was kind of odd because it seems like it doesn't seem like he has a lot invested in the whole idea of communism. It's, it's as if, it seemed to me, it's as if he's putting on kind of a show. I mean, everything was a performance at Jonestown. But, like, even even this particular thing, as much as he preached about socialism and communism and, um, you know, his his socialist utopia, um, it still, in, in many ways to me, seems like it was part of some performance. Well, I mean, that would lend itself to the idea that um, there's something more going on in Jonestown. And many people have made the claim that perhaps Jonestown was some sort of experiment. Yeah. That it was some sort of mind control experiment along the lines of what we talked about with the MK Ultra program. Mm-hmm. And if his communism was very insincere, then that may be a a sign of mm. that, I think. Well, even Congressman Leo Ryan uh, may have been of the of the um, opinion that the CIA was con- somehow connected with Jonestown. His aide certainly was. His yeah. aide had this opinion before Ryan went to Jonestown. Yeah. He was already talking about this. Because remember, this is the era right after when the Pentagon Papers came out. This is still in recent memory. Mm-hmm. The church committee has, I don't know if it has, I think it has convened and, and 
come to its findings by this point, not just the church committee, but the House Select Committee on Assassinations has been mm-hmm. running its course at this time as well. Mm-hmm. And strange parallels, by the way, speaking of that, with one of um, Jones's followers, Mark Lane. Yeah, very interesting. Mark Lane, who was an attorney, he wasn't a member of the People's Temple, but he was an attorney. Uh, he was the People's Temple attorney who had stayed in Jonestown for some time. Uh, he wasn't there the night of the suicides. But Mark Lane uh, is, was one of the first people to question the official story of the JFK assassination within four to six weeks after Oswald was murdered. Right. He then went on to represent, J- of all people, James Earl Ray mm-hmm. in his first case. So yeah. we've talked about both of James Earl Ray's lawyers, <laughs> apparently, on this Yeah, he actually also represented the Spotlight newspaper, uh, actually represented the right-wing group Liberty Lobby, um, who was sued over an article in the Spotlight about the the article that implicates E. Howard Hunt. At Dallas. At Dallas, Dallas. yeah, yeah. So that's so strange how how connected that is to two topics we've already covered, both the MLK and the MLK thing. Yeah, just before the J, both the JFK and the MLK thing. Yeah, so. Just a just an interesting side note. Some people claim that uh, Mark Lane, this attorney and this conspiracy researcher, um, was funded in part by the KGB, which he denies. So let's talk about Congressman Ryan, Leo Ryan's uh, visit to Jonestown. So he gets this, these people on a plane. They go down there. They land in Georgetown. They're brought out to uh, first, I believe, they're brought to the Temple headquarters in Georgetown before they're brought out to Jonestown. Georgetown, remember, is like the capital area of Guyana, um, the closest major city to Jonestown, um, to the to the camp out there. So uh, Congressman Ryan and his his associates, the people he's brought he's brought with them, and the press, and the with press, a camera. Yeah, they go out to Jonestown, and they're looking around. This is pretty much uninvited, you know what I mean? Um, he gets out there, and he wants to meet with Jim Jones. Jim Jones is like, oh, I can't really do that, you know. But he starts get having people coming up to him, uh, asking him to take them back to the United States. They want to escape Jonestown. Mm-hmm. And this isn't many. This is about 15 people out right. of 1,000. Right. One of the last people who uh, comes up to him is a man by the name of Layton, who was one of Jim Jones's lieutenants. This ends up, by the way, being the only man who was um, tried for any of these crimes, specifically the murder of Congressman Leo Ryan, who was the first, by the way, the first congressman to ever die in the line of duty. Right, because I don't know, if, I guess we just sort of skipped to the punchline there, yeah. but after Ryan's visit and after he leaves to take back, I guess, about 15 people from Jonestown, they all go back to an airstrip about six miles away, and um, as they're waiting to board their plane, tractor pulls up full of uh, gunmen. The gunmen get out, kill the members of the press, kill the congressman, wound some of the uh, some of the defectors, mm-hmm. and that's when everything sort of really explodes because right. this is his death, and these deaths are merely a prelude. Yeah. Because Jones, and if if you if if you go to the internet, you can find the audio of this of Jones's last sermon, the suicide tapes, what it's commonly called. This is the tape that was made while Jones was instructing all, however many you know, a thousand or more of his followers, to drink cyanide laced Kool Aid, 
Flavorade, actually. It was the exact brand name. Yeah, you know, okay, I gotta, I gotta, let me interject. Yeah, this. please. Let me interject this. Whenever I keep seeing like internet references, okay, mm-hmm. in like Wikipedia, especially, it was not Kool Aid or Flavorade, and then they have like the registered trademark next to it. I yeah. swear, I swear to God. Kool-Aid has gone on a campaign to disassociate <laughs> their name with Jonestown. Could be. Could I be. I believe it. I believe it. Yeah, it's probably some negative negative association for many people. I bet their PR department is keenly aware. Yeah, they of probably the have a whole Jonestown subsection of their marketing. <laughs> how do we how do we stop <laughs> right, this, right? Right. Thirty years twenty years later thirty years later or so. Yeah. So um, Kool-Aid sales went down 5,000% the next year. Yeah. So, so during, during the speech where Jones is, you know, is instructing 1,000 people to drink to kill themselves, just like he had on so many other nights, except this time it was real. This time, you know, over the 45-minute sermon or, or more, uh, the, the tape is there, actually... It's odd- longer than that. It's yeah, all cut up. It's oddly spliced. But over this time period, he's saying you know children first right families give your children the kool-aid before you take it and by most accounts everyone did it almost everyone did it almost everyone uh, took their own lives on the spot that night in jonestown and again you can go online and find the audio of this sermon you can find pictures of the aftermath it's utterly horrifying yeah, it's uh, prob- it's been described as the biggest mass suicide in history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it may be so. But there are a lot of conflicting reports about all this. Let's talk yeah. about this tape yeah. first before we get into any more any any heavier conspiracy stuff. Yeah. I found this tape odd, Joe. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to just give you guys my critique of this thing because I just first of all I want to start off by saying I'm I'm the one who edits out their radio. I've edited all 42 episodes. That's many, many, many hours of audio, and I've probably spent at least 100 hours behind an audio editing program in the past two years. You probably spend at least two hours per hour of audio on editing, I guess. An hour and a half, two hours, yeah, Yeah. exactly. Okay, so I've done a lot of audio editing, and I listened to this tape, and it's kind of what you would expect. He's giving the sermon... But there are times when the tape is clipped, when he's obviously, or it would seem that he is obviously hitting stop for a second, letting some bad thing happen, and then hitting record again when he has something else to say. So, for instance, he might record him giving instructions to the adults, but he won't leave the tape rolling after he finishes his sentence because you can, you can hear that there are babies crying in the background, for mm-hmm. example. So I listened to this the other night, and what struck me about it was that it was almost too well clipped. Like any time, like you you know when the, you know whatever's being clipped out is really bad. That it is the death screams of a thousand people, and it's almost too well edited for me. I I find it if 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 I were a people's temple temple member. And I was trying to doctor up that tape so it could look as good as possible and seem as, as the least horrific that it could. Then I could not have done a better job. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like it's too good a job, um, I think, for Jim Jones to have done it by pressing stop and record on a tape recorder that day. 
mm-hmm. or, or at the time because he's first of all he's eaten up with some kind of fungus in he's his got a lungs. stomach fungus yeah and it's, e- yeah. it's eating him up like Kurt's in his malaria it's right. eating him up it's right. smelled like slow death in there yeah you know yeah. and he, he's laying naked in his in his shack at night just mm-hmm. half dead pumped full of drugs it's very bizarre what's what's even more bizarre is and to me like again and this here's another you know vague possible rumor about these things two things one some people might suggest that the 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 editing on those tapes might imply that um the actual audio was taken from not from the the night of the suicide but rather over several of the other white knight drills the suicide drills from the you know from that whole year prior to the suicides. So perhaps, according to some people, perhaps, you know, the, the, this suicide tape is not what it seems at all, that it wasn't made on that night, but rather is, you know, a, a, a collection of other uh, sermons from other nights. Well, let's discuss that for a moment. Well, here, here's something very interesting to go along with that. November 18th was the night of the suicides. There is a November 19th tape made by persons unknown. Let me, let me say that the bodies weren't officially discovered until the 20th. Okay? But there is a tape made on November 19th. They're positive of the date it was made because it is a tape of... It's as if someone took the tape recorder next to a radio that um, was broadcasting news reports of the murder of Leo Ryan murder of an American congressman in Guyana. Some of them in English, some of them in the local lang- local languages, but there's it's certainly made the day after the suicides. Um, there are several people wh- whose voices you can hear on the tape. There's people shuffling around, going in and out of doors. No one knows who made the tape, where it was made, when it was made. Some people who were followers of Jim Jones who survived uh, survived Jonestown perhaps left before the suicides say uh, claim that one of the voices sounds just like Jim Jones himself implying that maybe Jones well Jones at least survived until the next day okay Jones himself uh, did not drink the Kool-Aid no the official report of his death is that he took a fistful of barbiturates and then when he didn't die from them he got his nurse to shoot him right so, like Cassius. <laughs> right. Although some reports say it was suicide, oddly enough. The, uh, however, the gun was found like 200 yards from his body. Right. So, and, and, many, and many of the other high-ranking members of the temple shot, supposedly shot themselves as well. Yeah. Um, one yeah. person who fled off into the woods said that about 45 minutes after the suicide started, or maybe an hour after the suicide started, he heard cheering mm-hmm. back at the camp and then gunshots. Yeah. And according to sort of the, the official version, that was like they the, the remaining leadership of the temple after everyone was gone, you know, came mm-hmm. together for one final cheer and shot yeah. themselves or yeah. shot each other. Yeah. So now there it's there are also it's kind of odd as to how the re, the initial reports came out. The initial reports uh talked about there being something along the lines of 400 or so suicides and it's how the other 700 people fled into the jungle. Fled into the jungle. That's the first that is on the I think the New York Times mm-hmm. very first day, first headline. Yeah. yeah. So even then, and, and then at some point, the number of deaths was, you know, 
pushed up to 900 and some. So, however, the Guianese coroner, who is uh, the local first local official on the scene, says that most of the bodies were... It, were murder victims. Were murder victims. And, and when I say most, he means almost all, like all but 30 or 40 yeah. from, from, from the language. Yeah, he talks about how many of them had uh, little needle marks behind their shoulder blades. So many of the murders were injections. Interestingly enough, I think there were only seven or so autopsies performed on the 900 and some odd people who died, who, uh, whose bodies were found in Jonestown. Um, their bodies were so badly decomposed when they made it back to the United States that uh, many of the victims' families don't even have the re- access to their remains. So these people could have been shot, and some no, of them, would all, for certainly, all we know. Certainly. And, and shot by who? Perhaps by the leaders of the cult? Mm-hmm. Perhaps by soldiers out in the uh, in the jungle? Because... You know, of course, Jones makes the claim that there are people watching, there are people listening. You know, remember, uh, yell it to the darkness or whatever he said, let let them hear it in the night, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, they're out there and all that stuff. Apparently, at least very shortly after the massacre, Green Berets were in the area. Mm-hmm. And uh, Colonel Bo Greitz, of all people, uh, I didn't expect him to show up on this episode. Right, right. Yeah, he was uh, the head of the Green Berets for uh, Central and South uh, Latin America, I guess, um, at the time. He's- if you remember Bo Greitz from, from back in a previous episode, Bo Greitz was the army off, former army officer who went back to Southeast Asia in the late 70s and early 80s to try to bring back Vietnam prisoners of war. And instead of finding any prisoners of war, what he did find was that the... Uh, the warlords in Thailand and in Southeast Asia wanted to sell him heroin, quote, like we had been selling to our CIA buddies. Well, maybe not quote, but right. you know what I'm saying. Like, right. Sort of me imitating them. But anyway, so Greitz says that the Green Berets were on the scene, what, five hours? Yeah. In fact, there were evidently there's two separate sources that the Green Berets were there in Jonestown within five or six hours. The first was a source from the U.S. military named Charles Huff who is from the Army Special Forces in Panama. And there's also Bo Greitz, who says that um, the Green Berets were instructed to kill the survivors in Jonestown. That's what Bo Greitz says. Yeah. And he was the head of the operation. He was the head of the Green Berets uh, in, in Latin America. Yeah. Why would they kill the rest of them? Well, this brings us to maybe the conspiracy aspect of this whole thing. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about now. this because uh, just a some quick a quick rundown. Um, we had mentioned that Jones had possible uh, connections to naval intelligence or claimed to while he was living in Brazil in the early '60s. He also was a was a friend of a of a CIA agent, a longtime friend, going from the '50s on. There's also this matter of Richard Dwyer. Richard Dwyer. He came yes. on the plane with uh, Leo Ryan, but was also, I guess... Uh, he was a, a State Department official in, in, Guyana. in Georgetown, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, and a CIA agent right, as well. Right, Um He was, in fact, like in the 1968 edition of the Who's Who in the CIA book, which I didn't even know there was a book, but I've seen it I've come across this several places. we got to get one of these. I know, right? I want to know Who's Who in the CIA. So, um, But Dwyer who was 
attacked on the airstrip with Leo Ryan. Supposedly. Supposedly. Shot in the butt. Yeah. Was also mentioned by name during Jones's final sermon. Yeah, get Dwyer out of here. Right. How can you get Dwyer out of here if he's being shot in the ass at the airstrip right, right now? Right, So it's really, really kind of shady. And, of course, uh, Jones always said that the CIA had infiltrated Jonestown, um, implying as well that uh, Tim Stone was an, also, in fact, a CIA agent. So to me, it's really, really shady. Like, many people consider Jonestown to be an extension of the CIA's MK Ultra mind control experiments. And it's almost this is sort of like the the ultimate experiment. It's the one we're going to take all the way out. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's exactly. like it's like giving people or it's like finding people who have syphilis and not treating them and watching how they die over the years. But it's even more so. than that because it's can you control someone to the point where they even throw away their self-preservation? And wasn't that the 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 main yeah. goal of MK yeah. Ultra going yes. back to when we yes. talked about yes. that? Yes, 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 exactly. That was exactly the goal of MK Ultra to to brainwash someone to the point where even their own self preservation doesn't matter anymore. Okay, this is what happened at Jonestown, regardless of of any sort of governmental involvement. Which again. Who knows? Because the facts are so shady. There's a lot of people saying a lot of different things about this. And you can find some very interesting stuff online about these CIA connections to Jim Jones and the People's Temple. Um, we've talked in this show that, about the, the fact that the um, People's Temple was evidently right, right down the street from like the Process Church. And, that sometimes, and uh, it was claimed occasionally that people saw Charlie Manson coming in and out of the People's Temple. Okay? Who was also, I mean, so if, if you're interested in this kind of like weird uh, late 60s and 70s CIA mind control occult type stuff, look at Jonestown, look at Process Church, look at Charlie Manson, look at those kinds of things. And Jonestown in particular probably has the best uh, evidence for, for uh, CIA involvement, which I'm not sure that I even believe necessarily. Again, all the facts around this are very vague and very shady, and you can't really come right. to a clear conclusion about any of it. But whether MK Ultra was involved or not, Jim Jones in the end accomplished their ultimate goal on 900 people that day. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um... Assuming they weren't all murdered by Green Berets. Right, or, or <laughs> Guyanese know, troops. Or Guyanese troops. Or given injections, in right. fact, by the people's temple but that's another possibility yeah. too is that most of them were murdered that there was some sort of battle that went on perhaps and there was a revolt went, you yeah. know uh and that's just what you don't hear when the tape stopped right who knows right who knows um but it's very it's very chilling stuff like i said it gave me a nosebleed and, a, and i had migraine yeah so yeah. just going through it all anyway we need to wrap this thing up here in the next few minutes joe what are, what are we going to close with here? yeah Let's uh, well let's let's close with our sources again because we've talked about all this all of this wealth of information that you can find on this stuff and there is a lot of it so here's where to look the San Diego State University archives is a is a great source the website is jonestown.sdsu.edu it has not only a lot of first person accounts of survivors of the people's temple and of jonestown itself but also a lot of articles including the conspiracy stuff like a lot of that is on this website and it's hosted by san diego state university they also by the way archive 
um, a website that is now defunct that was jonestown.com, which was another um, sort of informational archive. Now, the SDSU archive is the one that has all the tape transcripts. It also talks about, there's several articles about this tape that was made the day, the, the day after the suicides. So also check out uh, Father Cares. If you search Father Cares... On Google, it's it's on yeah. it's posted on the um, NPR site. Yeah, yeah, and that's linked. And there's also some supplemental interview material with some Jonestown survivors, mm-hmm. so and that'll give you some fresh perspective on that. Yeah, well. and that was that was the source of our audio clips, and I want to be very clear about that because that's a high quality documentary and much better of a presentation of Jonestown than we could do, except for its lack. Of awesome conspiracy theories. That's right. That's right. Um, But it's still very interesting. There's a lot of original material, like original audio recordings from Jonestown and that. Then also check out this upcoming documentary on PBS, which is going to be very interesting, I think. Yeah, I'm looking looking forward to that. There's also several great books, too, that you might want to check out. There are actually, Wikipedia has good uh, lists of sources for books and uh, things of that sort. Though it has... Apparently, Some spurious, spurious facts about yeah. the Jonestown yeah. case and its articles. So. But but then again, it seems like almost every every source has a fact that contradicts another source with this thing. It's like the Bible. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so on that note, I hope you enjoyed our discussion of the of Jonestown. Because to me, again, it's one of the most fascinating topics we've done. All right, and we may end up revisiting this at some point in the future. It'll be in the back. I think this is going to be in the back of my mind for a long time. Coming, yeah, yeah. This, this this may require some more research. So, yeah. and hopefully, you'll do some more research too. If you want to discuss this Jonestown stuff with us, you can send us an email out there, radio at gmail dot com. We welcome your so suggestions, your your feedback, your your critiques, whatever you want to send us. Also visit visit our website www.outthereradio.net. There's also forums on there where you can go on and discuss things and of this sort. If you feel like starting a Jonestown thread, we'll yeah. st- I'll write in it. Yeah, yeah, I'll write in it definitely. And um, if if you want to talk to me, uh, uh, you can uh, send me an instant message on AOL Instant Messenger at Out There Radio. Anytime you see that's my screen name, Out There Radio. Anytime you see me logged on, feel free to drop me a line. I I, I really like talking to. Uh, the listeners, it gives me a lot of good feedback, and you guys end up giving me a lot of information that I would never have picked up on otherwise. So We'd also like to thank Paranoia Magazine. Read it. That's exactly right. And Chris LaCours, also known as Illuminati Rex. Check out his Famous comics. comic book artist. Thanks again to our very own Austin Gandy. Thank you, Austin. Yes. It's always a pleasure having you here. We'll see the Invisible College again next week, yep. I'm sure. So uh, that's going to do it for Out There Radio this evening. My name is Raymond Wiley. I'm Joe McFall. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Out There, a presentation of WUOG 90.5 FM in Athens, Georgia. For more information or to subscribe to our podcast, visit www.wuog.org slash podcasts or email us at outthereradio at gmail.com.